Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now is the best time of the year to support the podcast. For we have reached the dog days of summer. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anison. You're listening to episode number 422 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, Kahootek, Experiments, Flight Prep, and Training. First, I'd like to do a little housekeeping. You know I always give credit to my sources at the end of the podcast, but I wanted to give a big shout-out to the book Homesteading Space, which I have leaned heavily on during this series because it has all the quotes an inside scoop from the astronauts that really make the episodes more interesting. A great book. I recommend it. Now let's begin. In space, on the day the second crew left Skylab, which was September 25, 1973, the orbital workshop began its third unmanned period. I thought you might be interested to know what was going on when it was empty. Skylab was depressurized to 2 PSI in order to lower the dew point, and then the pressure was raised to 5 PSI with nitrogen to aid in the cooling of the six-pack gyro located in the multiple docking adapter Remember, this is the one the second crew installed. By October 24th, normal leakage had lowered the pressure to 4.05 pounds per square inch. Controllers then initiated a repressurization to 4.5 PSI and allowed it to depressurize to 3.75 PSI by November 14th. Even though the workshop was now devoid of a human presence, some Apollo telescope mount experiments were performed during the period until November 14th when the primary experiment pointing control failed. The use of the secondary pointing controller allowed normal operations, but these were curtailed to protect the system until the third crew arrived. Only one solar experiment did not use the controller, and it continued to gather data. On November 14th, the pressure inside the workshop was allowed to 
decrease all the way down to 0.7 pounds per square inch in order to purge the abnormal mixture of nitrogen and oxygen that had been used for rate gyro cooling. And then Skylab was repressurized with the normal mixture of oxygen and nitrogen to 5 psi, pending the arrival of the third and possibly final crew. The fourth space vehicle in NASA's Skylab program was moved to the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center in August 1973. The move was made at an early date so that this Saturn rocket and its spacecraft could serve as a potential rescue vehicle for the second manned Skylab crew. The space vehicle remained in a launch-ready condition at Pad B until the end of the 59-day mission of the second crew. In November, the Saturn rocket was prepared to launch the third Skylab crew to a rendezvous with the orbiting space station. Gerald Carr was commander of this, the final Skylab mission. William Pogue was pilot. And Dr. Edward Gibson was science pilot. None of the men had been in space before, but on this 85-day mission, each of them would set endurance records for the longest time spent in space flight. With that update on the station and the carrier rocket complete, let's spend some time on the most important factor of the whole equation, the crew. The Skylab 3 crew was supposed to break new ground in mission duration and accomplishments. It would do so with an all-rookie crew. No one on the crew had a single day of spaceflight experience, but if all went well when they returned, each crew member would have spent more continuous time in space than any other person ever. For the Skylab 4's commander, Jerry Carr, and its pilot, Bill Pogue, the Skylab assignment started off like a second-place consolation prize. Jerry Carr recalled this, quote, I was tentatively scheduled to fly on Apollo 19. Our crew was to be Fred Hayes, the commander, Bill Pogue, the command module pilot, and me, the lunar module pilot. We got started on that assignment and began our training program. Then, if my memory serves me correctly, it was around 1970, early 1970 or so, when it was decided that Apollo 18, 19, and 20 would be canceled. So that was a bad day at Blackrock for the three of us. We had lost our opportunity to go to the moon. We moped around for quite a few weeks. Then Tom Stafford called me into his office and informed me that I was to be the commander of the third Skylab crewed mission and asked, Do you think you can work with Bill Pogue and Ed Gibson? And I said, of course I can. At that time, they took us off our roles as the backup crew for Apollo 16 and put another crew in there, and we began focusing on Skylab. 
I was delighted to get a seat, and I was absolutely floored that they would select me to be a commander because there hadn't been a rookie commander at NASA since, what was it? I guess it was probably Armstrong on Gemini 8. And so I was really flabbergasted to be selected and very happy to do it. What delighted me the most was that I was going to be working with Al Bean, Pete Conrad, and people like that, which was a really wonderful thing. End quote. Ed Gibson recalled it like this, quote, When assigned to the mission, I knew I was in fast company. Bill Pogue initially appeared to be just an average, mild-mannered mathematician, which he was. But he was also once grounded for flying too low behind enemy lines. He was an Air Force test pilot and flew with the Thunderbirds. He is a sharp aggressive guy. Jerry Carr had a good education in aeronautics and was a marine aviator, which pretty much said it all. The all-rookie crew aspect didn't faze me. I was just happy to get a seat and fly with guys I really respected. In retrospect, I lucked out. I got to do great science be fully immersed in all aspects of astronaut activities, and fly high-performance aircraft. It just could not get any better than that. End quote. Even though the three rookie astronauts were excited to fly on Skylab 4, they had no idea that the mission was already facing two major challenges, the past and the future. The challenge of the future was the space shuttle program, which was the next big thing on the horizon. Early development of the shuttle was already underway by the time of Skylab, and the orbiter contract had been signed the month before Skylab 1 launched, with a critical design review scheduled for 1975. However, the program still faced opposition in Congress, a major part of the system was a one-shot pilot-controlled landing from orbit with no go-around capability. There were those who felt that landing would be too large a challenge, particularly if the pilot were suffering from space sickness. The Skylab 4 crew had been made aware of how important it was that they not give the orbiters enemies ammunition against the program, in that respect. Now, the past affected the third crew in the form of the two Skylab missions that flew before them. Both Skylab 2 and 3 had been behind their timelines, but in both cases there were obvious factors that contributed to these slow starts. Fortunately, the third Skylab crew learned from the mistakes of the first two crews. Remember, the first crew had to deal with high temperatures and power shortages, while the second crew was slowed by motion sickness. However, the main reason for the slow starts was that the crews needed time to learn how to perform tasks efficiently in weightlessness, especially in a large spacecraft. The second crew became more efficient with repetition and was able to complete more work than scheduled by the end of their mission. 
This experience helped the third crew to avoid the same problems and to be more productive during their mission. Now, upon learning of the 150% return of the Bean supercrew, scientists and mission planners saw an opportunity. Clearly, they had not sent enough work for the second crew to do, and they began making sure the third crew was going to have plenty of work to accomplish. Flight Director Neil Hutchinson recalled, quote, We got to Skylab 4, which was going to be the last mission in the program. The train was leaving the station, and all kinds of experiments and experimenters were running for a seat. End quote. Then, NASA also decided to take advantage of another opportunity during the third cruise flight. In late December 1973 and early January 1974, Comet Kahutek would be passing through the inner solar system. By having the third crew observe Kahutek from Skylab, the agency could demonstrate the potential of orbital astronomy by performing an unprecedented feat. No comet had ever been observed from space before. Comet Kahutek is on its way. Visible between mid-November and late January, it will eventually be as bright or brighter than the famous Halley's Comet of 1910. When Kahutek reaches its closest point to the sun on December 28th, it will have completed a journey that began about two million years ago. Four NASA spacecraft, sounding rockets, balloons, Skylab, ground-based observatories, and telescope-carrying aircraft like this will team up to form the most comprehensive comet watch ever planned. Astronomers are eager to determine the elements that make up Kohutek, elements that should tell us more about the nature and origin of the sun and other planets. Pogue recalled, quote, some other training we got at the last minute included that on Comet Kahutek. Early in the year, it was discovered at the Hamburg Observatory in West Germany that this comet was headed toward the sun and was going to reach its perihelion about Christmas Day of 1973. There was a lot of talk about the period of the comet becoming about 2,000 years which led speculation that it was actually the Christmas comet, the one cited in the biblical stories of the new star. At any rate, we did some studying and training for that experiment as well. End quote. Just to keep the public informed, NASA made a long press release about all the extra experiments the third crew would perform. Now, I'm going to read this to you so you will know what to expect on this mission, but also I want you to understand the extra workload that was given the third crew at the last minute. Because, logically, if the second crew could do all that extra work, then certainly, with the knowledge that had been obtained, the third crew could as well. Now, I'm not trying to cast blame on NASA. Instead, I am trying to explain the logic behind their decision. Here is NASA's press release 73-107. 
Quote, NASA Today announced tentative plans to observe the comet Kahootek during the Skylab mission, which is planned for launch on or about November 9th from the Kennedy Space Center. The November date is the original planned launch date for Skylab 4. The comet Kahootek was identified earlier this year and will be clearly visible from Earth. It is expected to be the brightest object in the night sky except for the moon in late December and early January. Skylab's Apollo telescope mount instruments designed to obtain data on the sun will observe Kahootek during its nearest proximity to the sun late in December. As Skylab's third crew collects data on the Earth's resources from 270 miles out in space, two aircraft from the Johnson Space Center will skim near the surface using laser instruments to provide an exact profile of the land and water at more than a dozen sites. During the coming months, NASA aircraft will use laser profilometers over portions of the North Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, the Puerto Rican Trench, and the Great Salt Lake to support Skylab remote sensing passes over the same areas. The press releases continue. This one's titled Skylab Gypsy Moth Research Project. 1,000 gypsy moth eggs in two special vials will be launched aboard the fourth and final Skylab mission on November 10th. The first moths in space are part of a research project sponsored by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Agricultural Research in cooperation with NASA. Agricultural scientists are trying to find out if the state of weightlessness might be the key to altering the gypsy's moth's life cycle. If weightlessness does prove to be the factor, the key point may be found in rearing insects by the missions and thus controlling a whole class of insect pests with similar life cycles. The press the release continues, and this is titled Third Skylab Crew to Expand Knowledge of Earth Resources. Astronaut Gerald Carr, Edward Gibson, and William Pogue will be well equipped to survey the Earth during a final Skylab mission that could last nearly three months. Their training included 40 hours of special lectures on Earth observations and they're taking along a detailed handbook for viewing Earth from space and the largest store of film and computer tapes ever supplied for a Skylab mission. Meanwhile, the 20,000 Earth photographs and 25 miles of computer tape obtained from the two previous Skylab flights will be undergoing extensive analysis by 137 principal investigators and their staffs in the United States and 18 foreign countries before the first Earth Resources Experiment Package passes of the final Skylab mission can be undertaken. Science pilot Ed Gibson, assisted by his 
fellow crew members will attempt to repair the antenna drive system microwave radiometer scatterometered altimeter called the S-193 experiment. Gibson will work on the S-193 experiment during the crew's first walk outside the space station scheduled for the week following launch. Pilot Bill Pogue will join him outside. The press release continues with Operation Skylab Barium. Skylab's third and last crew of astronauts is scheduled to add another information data collecting task to an already full agenda. In addition to continuing investigations of the sun, earth resources, and medical effects of long-duration spaceflight begun by preceding Skylab crews, the astronauts are going to participate in an experiment to trace geomagnetic field lines with barium ions. Beginning with the morning of November 27th, Carr, Gibson, and Pogue will join a widespread network of observation stations waiting for the launch of a NASA Black Brant 4 rocket from the Poker Flat Range near Fairbanks, Alaska. The rocket payload is designed to create a high-explosive-driven jet of barium vapor and inject it into the Earth's magnetosphere. It is hoped that the barium vapor, ionized by solar ultraviolet radiation, will illuminate geomagnetic field lines and make them visible to sensitive optical equipment for many thousands of kilometers. The press release continues with the special camera to photograph Comet Kahootek from Skylab. As the Comet Kahootek streams through space at speeds exceeding 160,000 kilometers per hour, or 100,000 miles per hour, astronauts aboard the Skylab station will use a special camera to photograph features not visible from Earth's surface. The camera, called a Far Ultraviolet Electrographic Camera and designated Experiment S-201, was built by the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. Dr. George R. Caruse prepared the instrument for use aboard the space station during a three-month crash program. That was all on one press release, then NASA produced another one. This is release 73-156. A Skylab bonus of three unscheduled science demonstrations performed by the second Skylab crew in their spare time has resulted in plans for expansion of this activity by the third crew. The demonstrations to be filmed by TV, movie, and still cameras will require a degree of inventiveness from the crew and will provide a change of pace for them during the mission. The activities will also provide material for educational applications. In addition, NASA scientists believe that examination of the photographs and video data of these demonstrations will be considerable assistance in designing even more valuable and complex science experiments to use on board the space shuttle. 
And that is the end of the press releases. As you heard, the crew of Skyland 4 faced a real challenge due to the new activities and others added to the mission at the last minute. The crew had been working to prepare for one mission, but suddenly found themselves with little time left to prepare for a much larger one. And their position as the last in line made getting adequate and proper training even more difficult. Carr said, quote, We didn't have a chance in the beginning to get much real simulator training because the two crews ahead of us were going to get it all. And all of us Skylab guys had to wait till the Apollo program was over. So, even Pete Conrad and his crew only were getting sporadic training whenever the simulator was available. We were left playing with cardboard and other low-fidelity mock-ups to try to figure out what to do in flight. End quote. Pogue agreed, saying, quote, We were the last crew. The first crew dominated the simulators when they were training. Then, obviously, the second crew also had to spend a lot of time in the simulators. In addition, the backup crew required increased training when the potential arose of rescuing the second crew if their RCS thruster problem worsened. Thus, we were left doing only peripheral stuff. We would go wherever they weren't getting trained, whichever simulator or trainer wasn't down for maintenance. Then, of course, as soon as they launched, we finally got three months of relatively intensive training. End quote. Even though the crew was low on the list for simulator use, they stayed busy with training activities. Carr said, quote, One of our main tasks was to help put together the training program for all Skylab crewmen. So we worked hot and heavy with people in the training department to help them brainstorm and get that sort of stuff out of the way. Since we didn't have any simulators to work with and we couldn't do anything else, it was probably an excellent use of our time. We each ended up with individual jobs. Ed was the guy in charge of experiments, and particularly the solar physics experiments. He had recently written a textbook called The Quiet Sun and was the solar physics expert in the astronaut corps. Ed really focused heavily in that area. Bill managed a lot of Skylab fluid systems and other experiments. My main focus was the Skylab navigational guidance and related systems. We structured our training so that all of us could operate anything, but if something went wrong, there was always one expert." End quote. The crew emphasized preparation for Earth observation tasks during their training. Jerry Carr explained, quote, We did not want to be in the position at a debriefing of having someone ask us about something we saw and being able to say nothing more than, Yeah, we saw it. Sure was pretty. We went to Ken Kleinick and said that we really wanted to be 
intelligent observers of the earth when we weren't doing other things and asked if he could help us. They gave us 40 hours of training time and promised to find at least 20 world experts on various earth phenomena. Each of them was to come to the center to give us two-hour briefings on what's important, what they wanted to know, and how we were to look for it. That turned out to be probably the most exciting and rewarding of all the experiments that we did because it provided the opportunity to ad-lib and ad-lib intelligently. The kinds of people we worked with included Lee Silvers, who was an earthquake fault expert from Southern California, John Campbell, who was an expert on ice formation in the northern and southern latitudes, Bob Stevenson, who was an outstanding oceanographer from La Jolla, a desert formation expert, and several meteorologists. These people were programmed into our training, enthusiastically came to the center and talked about what data we could acquire that would provide them with the best insights into their particular studies of the earth. We thoroughly enjoyed those 40 hours of training. They also gave us a lot of extra film, particularly to make up for some of the film that got ruined by the high temperatures in the station early on. On balance, we were able to do pretty well with that. End quote. The first two missions left behind some challenges for the third crew, but they also provided some benefits. Carr recalled, quote, We drew a lot of conclusions from what we saw on the first two missions. I think the most important one was that when the first crew came back after 28 days, they were pretty wobbly, pretty weak. So the second crew and ours decided to bump up the exercise periods. Al Bean's crew doubled their exercise period from half an hour to an hour a day. Turns out that that didn't appear to be enough either. So we increased it again to an hour and a half. End quote. Gibson said, quote, We were determined that we would stay longer and come back in better condition than the previous crews, partially because we learned from their experience on how to best exercise to counter the effects of zero gravity, end quote. Looking at the results of the second cruise mission, Carr saw the roots of a potential problem for his flight and took action to prevent it. He said, quote, We watched the way experiments were being done, and some of our procedures were modified based on what the first two crews had learned. We noticed that the second crew was really hustling all the time. By the end of their mission, their rate of activity was extremely high. We began telling some of the managers that we didn't think that rate of work was wise for a 90 or even an 84-day mission because we weren't sure that we were going to be able to sustain it. We thought that the workload should be slacked off some and there should be more rest. Everybody agreed to that. 
and the experiments were slowed and spread out quite a bit. Unfortunately, they then added a whole bunch of new experiments, and we allowed ourselves to get trapped into this new situation. All of these experiments that were added at the last minute came with a lot of problems that we didn't have the time to detect and take into consideration. So when we got up there, we found that we were overcommitted, just like the first crew, and that we were going to have to sustain the high Skylab 3 work pace for 84 days instead of 59 that they had experienced, end quote. Gibson recalled, quote, The first crews really performed well and set pretty high standards for us to live up to. But in critiquing their performance, we couldn't let them get swelled heads. Yes, the troops on Skylab 2 faced temperatures of 140 degrees and did a great job of making the station usable. But after all, it was a dry heat. The second crew erected a larger sunshade that further lowered the temperatures down into the comfortable range, except for one hot spot that formed when the station was in nearly continuous sunlight at my sleep compartment. At those times, I just floated my cot into the multiple docking adapter and slept there. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 422 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 4, Kahootek, Experiments, Flight Prep, and Training. Our next episode should be released on or about September 22nd. Note, I have moved the date out one day. That is a Friday. I am having some issues outside the podcast. In fact, it has nothing to do with the podcast. But these issues are absorbing an enormous amount of my time. And I'm going through some really challenging problems that I'm not ready to share to the whole world those problems yet. But if you are a person of faith, I would appreciate a prayer on my behalf. I know some of you stay up late waiting for a new podcast episode to be released. So please don't do that because I'm not sure I can make it by September 22nd. Okay, if you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, You can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 241 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at spacerockethist.com. 
and you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. Have a few afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. I would uh, have liked to have gotten to the launch on this episode. That was my intention originally. But there was so much important information that I found. And I did want to do some foreshadowing in this episode. So I simply ran out of time. I will say this. Do you think this crew is going to be busy? NASA pretty much gave the crew all they could handle and perhaps more. Understandably, the performance of the second crew influenced that decision immensely. Hopefully, we will get the crew up on Skylab next time. Finally, there is a little bit of personal news uh, that I can share with you. Feel free to skip this part if you're not interested. Uh, the soybeans out in the 15-acre field are beginning to dry out now. They're just starting to dry out, turn yellow. The uh, personal garden is still producing tomatoes and some peppers, which we are enjoying on a daily basis. If you're keeping up with the health of my mother-in-law, she has passed one test and taken another test to see if she will be allowed to undergo valve replacement surgery. Now, the results of the second test are not in yet, so we will have to wait on that one. Do you know that they use a heart valve of a pig when they do a valve replacement surgery like that? I did not. Okay, moving on to donations. Over the past fortnight, we received six new donations and pledges, and I am very thankful for that. Colin C. from Massachusetts, who sent in another donation and is now at the Orion level. Thank you, Colin. Richard K. donated at the Gemini level and earned a satellite emoji. David H. from Indianapolis increased his pledge on Patreon to the Voyager level. Go Colts! Derek W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Robert G. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. And an anonymous donor on Patreon increased his pledge to the Mercury level. Unfortunately, Patreon donors went down to 230. New month, probably due to credit card expiration. We were at 235 last episode, so we dropped five. I don't call it dog days for nothing. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023, have reached 326, with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So, if you are enjoying this podcast... That has been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com clicking on the orange donate button or the patreon link or you can donate by check donate on venmo or zelle using my email address 
spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH Archive Magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA Meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Andy Piper. Andy Piper, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homestead in Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 423 posted on or about September 22nd. So long for now.